Good morning. Welcome to church. Um, I want to speak to you today. Oh, oh, that is the wrong notes. Wowzers. I was about to preach last week's sermon, y'all. That would have that gone poorly. Well, he didn't hear it, so. Would have been good. <laughs> this is a first here. Sorry. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. Sorry about that. Um, we are going to spend some time today uh, looking at the Lord's Prayer. Yeah, there it is. Um, and today, we're really just going to prime the pump uh, to begin thinking about prayer together. Uh, like, what's the point of it? What did, why did Jesus talk about it? What did Jesus actually say about prayer? And before we get too far into what we're going to actually sit with today, I just want to answer the question, uh, why explore prayer? Like, is it even a topic worth exploring? <laughs> uh, right? I mean, that's a legitimate question, right? Some of you in here are like, why, right? Uh, well, because there are large swaths of church-attending, self-professed Christians who have little to no real, authentic, relational engagement with God. That's why. <laughs> for all of our good intentions, for all of our declarations of undying faithfulness to the Lord and song that Christians sing every Sunday, we seem to neglect uh, perhaps the most simple childlike facet of our faith, talking to God. And if we do pray, um, it may sound similar to Anne Lamott's uh, description of prayer, of her prayer life, which is, help me, help me, help me, thank you, thank you, thank you, and then you get on with the real business of life. And prayer to many is simply the obligation that you mumble before you eat, or what the pastor does at church that you tolerate, right? <laughs> or our last resort if we find ourselves up the creek without a paddle, right? Yet, when we look at the Bible, when we look at the language used in prayers in the Bible, when we look at prayer of the Bible, we do not see obligatory mindless phrases. Thank you for this food. Traveling mercies keep us safe. Amen. Now, in fact, when we do see rehearsed mindless prayer, what Jesus calls empty phrases, it is condemned Amen. as less than what God has in mind when he thinks of prayer. See, in scripture, what we see is that prayer comes from the depths of the soul, right? Prayer, the language we see in prayer in the Bible, sometimes visceral, right? Expressing feelings of praise and affections and worship, but at the same time often expressing feelings of suffering and affliction and deep, deep sorrow. My God, why have you forsaken me? That's prayer in the Bible. We don't pray like that anymore. We pray nice, happy prayers that everyone feels good about, right? We don't pray the prayer of the Psalms anymore. Where are you, God? Why have you left me? That's like prayer in the Bible. That's what we see in the Bible. We see prayer in the Bible bubbling up from the reality of your soul, not skimmed off the superficial surface of your soul. Biblical prayer 
bubbles up from the depths and is out of honest response both to the beauties of God and the sufferings of this life. That's prayer. That's where prayer happens. That's when these two realities come together, the beauties of God and the sufferings of this life. Boom, prayer. That's what at least the Bible seems to think prayer is, right? It's why David in the Psalms seems like a schizophrenic. You ever read the Psalms? Like one second, he's like, you're wonderful. I'm wonderfully made. Everything's wonderful. God, we're gonna praise you, exalt you. Where are you, God? Right? In the same Psalm. I mean, it's like a skit, like David, choose one, man. Like, what's going on, dude? Like, Psalm 22, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away? Psalm 13, why do you hide your face from me, God? If your prayers can't, oh, what's the word, right? Don't have the density, like the architectural integrity to sustain your honesty, it's not prayer. Something else. You know what I'm talking about? If you're, if you're, these are little frothy things that just kind of, you know, like just skim off the top. That's not prayer, right? Prayer, can't, prayer is, the, is, is that place of our gut-wrenching honesty meeting the beauties of God. It's where prayer happens, right? So he's saying, why do you hide your face? How long will you feel so far away from me? That's a prayer of the Bible. How long will you feel so far away from me? That's in the Psalms, man. Some of you are like, it's like my whole Christian life, right? One of the prayers in the Psalms, my heart is full of sorrow all day. And then on a dime, but I'm gonna sing to the Lord because his steadfast love, his generous heart towards me. You are my shelter, God. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I, mean, I can relate to the Psalms, y'all. Because like one day I'm like, I'm killing it, man. Killing it, being an awesome dad. Just played with my kids for hours. I'm exhausted, right? And then the next day I'm just like, I'm, I'm a horrible father, you know? I'm just, I'm just screaming, you know? Anyone can, I said, okay, y'all just like, got like, I was like, what are you talking about? You can relate to one day just feeling amazing, the beautiful skies, you're just killing it with the Lord. The next day you're like, where are you, God, right? Just dying. That's the kind of, landscape in which real and authentic prayer rises to God. It is not pretending like things are awesome and bringing that version to God. Prayer is bringing the reality of your heart and life, where you are right now, not some 10-year perfected version of yourself that we project to others and to God, to, to him. That's not prayer. That's something else. Jesus is going to talk about that. Prayer in the Bible is simply when individuals, instead of hiding what they are really feeling, bring that honesty to God. Because, and here's the catch, they actually believe he cares. See, if you don't believe God cares for you, if you don't believe that he's interested in the internal realities of your heart and life, why are you going to talk? You're not going to talk to him about him. He doesn't care. He's up there doing God things, like hanging out with babies floating on clouds. What does God do? We don't know. Oh, cherubims, right? He doesn't care about how I feel. Well, not according to the Psalms. In fact, according to the Psalms, what we see is just bubbling up emotive language over and over and over and over and over again, right? And all the Stoics in the room are like, well, I don't know about that. Well, read the Psalms, bro. Just read the Psalms. The Psalms are the prayer book of the church. It's what it's historically known as, right? Thus, 
real prayer in the Bible is just absent of this empty-headed, obligatory formality that many of us think of when we think of prayer, which begs the question, is our lack of honest prayer due to a fundamental misunderstanding of what prayer really is, like what it's for? What is it actually supposed, like what's the point, right? It's a fair question, and I'm glad you asked because it's what's in my notes. So next, we're gonna go to Revelations 21, and here's why we're gonna go there, right? You're gonna see that in a second. If you look at the overarching meta-narrative of the Bible, like the whole, what's the whole point of the book? Like, where's it all going? Look at how it starts. Look at the conflict, the problem that arises. Look at how that problem is dealt with. Like we talked about last week, God creates man. Man rebels from God, incurs the guilt of sin. Jesus claimed to forgive that guilt of sin by his blood, but for what? Like, why? <laughs> right? What does it lead to? What's the point? What's it all accomplished? What's supposed to be the worthy result at the end of all this? Like, what, what makes all of the suffering of Jesus worth it? Not only that, what makes all my suffering worth it? Like, what does the Bible say? All the suffering, all the trials, all the tribulations, like, what's the great resolve? We can say it this way. What ending could the Bible offer that would make everything worth it? Everything. All the evils done against you. All of the trials, all of the betrayals, all of the bloodshed. What on earth, what kind of ending could make all of that worth it? All, all enduring temptation, staying the lines, being faithful, suffering, what could make it all worth it, right? In fact, what Romans 8 is going to say, that it makes all of that, what could make all that seem, what Romans 8, light and momentary, right? Compared to the weight of glory. What is the key characteristic of that ending that makes the cross worth it, that makes your suffering, that makes your faithfulness, what faithfulness has cost you worth it? Well, let's read. Revelations 21 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband's marriage. Wedding ceremony, I guess you could say. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither there shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Now, the most common thing people like to point to here is that there's no more pain. There's no more death, which of course, we know, you know, death is the greatest foe of humanity, right? So when we come to this passage of scripture, we want to point out death's been defeated. That's it right? No mourning, no crying, God himself wiping the tears from our eyes, making all things new. These ideas create a reality that every heart longs for, Christian or not. A painless life, 
Of course. So what does it lead to? Well, death defeated, suffering destroyed. Amen. Or as the early church would say, Maranatha, which means come Lord. And today we pray, you know, or when we pray, come Lord, right? Hasten your return. Uh, this is often what we're thinking of. Right the wrongs. End injustice, end the evils, end this, bring justice and equity that our infrastructures can't seem to establish, no matter how hard they try. Lord, you right, and this is the great promise we cling to. But that's not the, what the thunderous voice announces first. It's not it. What is the first characteristic, and perhaps the most excellent, most desirable char- characteristics of the great resolve? We'll look in verse three. The first thing the voice says is this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. See, I to argue that what makes heaven heaven is not just the absence of injustice. It's not just the absence of evil and sorrow and suffering, but rather and more importantly, what makes heaven heaven is the immediate and real presence of God. That's it. That's the great resolve. That's what is, that's what it's all pointing to. The restoration, the redemption of all things. How is it, what is it redeemed for? What is it redeemed to? His presence. His, his nearness that the presence of God is what makes all of the suffering, all the adversity, all the sorrow worth it. Not just that one day suffering will be no more, but that one day we will be with him fully and completely. No longer knowing him through a mirror dimly, but face to face, fully unashamed in his presence, right? No longer hiding behind and within this body, but fully present in a new body not marred by its own sinfulness, fully known, fully forgiven, before the brightness of his unmitigated beauty and splendor. Look at me. God is the great reward. He himself. Not all the good things that he might bless you with. Not golden streets, not mansions, not seeing loved ones of the past, not even the end of suffering. All of that. Look at me, man. I mean, we can't even imagine a world without suffering. Without, we can't, but look, all of that pales in comparison to the beauty of Jesus. All of it. To the presence and beauty, the great worth of God of all creation. We get God. That's what we get. So it makes heaven heaven, right? We get to share in his glory, his honor, his love, his wisdom, his strength. And here's the crazy part. The prophets said the Messiah would be called Emmanuel. So Jesus' divine nickname means God with us. So we can therefore rightly say two things. In Jesus, heaven came to earth. And number two, when we experience him, when we experience Jesus, we experience that for which our hearts ultimately long for, right? Under all the surface longings we may feel, what we really want is him, his presence, his nearness. Now, why do I talk about this when we talk about prayer? And we're starting a conversation on prayer because prayer is how we actively invite that great resolve, 
his presence into our hearts and lives now. In fact, in the New Testament, it shows that prayer is the main catalyst for almost all the great encounters had with God in the book of Acts. Almost, almost almost every time scripture talks about the Holy Spirit falling or filling or people receiving the Holy Spirit, it is preceded by prayer. Almost every time. Acts 11, it happens mid-sermon, right? Peter didn't even get a chance to tell his jokes and the Holy Spirit, boom, came. Like I'm praying for that, right? It's why, side note, the Holy Spirit, y'all, is called a deposit, a down payment or a guarantee of what's to come. It is a foretaste of heaven, more specifically a foretaste of his presence here and now that we are called to long for ardently, right? It's why we never want to, as 1 Thessalonians 5 says, quench the spirit or treat prophecies with contempt, right? It's why Every single time I come in this room, we get ready for this service right now, I pray in that room, Holy Spirit, come. Because we know if the Spirit of God is not saturating what we do, then we are just up here, amateur actors on an unimpressive stage with a song and a dance. Like, our greatest fear is that you would engage with what we do on this place and at the end say, that was some fine music and that guy's funny, all right? Like, <laughs> If that's, if that's all you walk away with, we have failed, right? Like tragically, miserably failed. Because we pray every week that what you would encounter by doing all the stuff we do is not us. Like we're just a little, we get to play a little part in what we're hoping you experience by being a part of the church of God, which is yourself individually experiencing in reality the goodness of the presence of God. If we're not getting there, if you're never as an individual pressing through the threshold of the physical in this place, then we're failing, y'all. We're not getting to what we're supposed to be getting, being a part of the church. We, we are to encounter the Holy Spirit as, as we encounter bread for our bodies. It is a daily and nourishing thing that the New Testament says we are to long for. Why? Because in the Holy Spirit, we are getting a foretaste of what we will one day enjoy fully and completely, the presence of God, right? The point of all this is that you experience God. If you are not, as an individual, experiencing God, then we've, we've, we're, we've missed the whole point, right? Because we believe that only when you, as an individual, as an individual, experience God for yourself, that's when the change begins to happen. You can listen to all the sermons you want. I mean, I can just sweat and pray over these sermons, right? You, can, you know, Duck can hit that high note as long as he wants. It's not gonna do anything. It's not gonna transform your life. It's not gonna fix the brokenness in the depths of your soul. None of that will. You know who can? Jesus. And so that's why we pray for his spirit and his presence to come, right? So in prayer, we get God. We get his nearness, his power, his love, his goodness. That's the goal. That's the point. It's the point of all creation. It's the point of prayer. It's the point of this church right here. Therefore, prayer is not simply to bend the ear of heaven to get what you want. Prayer is not you're throwing a penny in the pond for good luck. That's how many people think of prayer. 
Prayer is not a divine kind of safety insurance. Prayer is not a brainless formality. Prayer is not how we earn brownie points with God and religious people. So let's sit with that for a second. Prayer is not how we perform the song and dance to prove that we are the right kind of spiritual. All of those things, good things, safety, who's gonna argue safety's a bad thing? Religious reputation, spiritual, I mean, don't you kinda wanna be known as like, hey, I'm a spiritual person, yeah, I mean, like a, I'm kinda, you can come to me for advice, come to me for advice, yeah, isn't that nice? Don't we want that, isn't that a good thing, right? We wanna be safe, we wanna, none of those are bad things, I'm just saying, all that pales, getting what you want, like prayers, you know, like getting what, you know, when we pray for things, Lord, I want a sports car. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not gonna say it's a bad thing, right? Sometimes I want a sports car. Lord, give me a sports car. Not a bad thing. I'm just saying that pales in comparison to the presence of God. Like being an awesome, religiously known spirit, everyone's always just so spiritual, pales in comparison to knowing God right? Everyone thinks you're awesome. Pales in comparison, right? Getting all the things you want pales in comparison to knowing and enjoying and delighting in the presence of God. Now we're getting somewhere. None of that compares to knowing God as an individual. We come together and we reach for God corporately. And that's a great thing. None of that compares to knowing him as an individual reaching to him, talking with him. In fact, all of those things, good things, right? Spiritual reputation, good. All of that's like comparing dirt to water, trying to satisfy your thirst. All of that's like comparing cardboard to bread, trying to fill your belly. So Paul would write, after he had achieved religious fame, right? Religious respect from all of his colleagues. He was the creme de la creme, right? The upper high. You see that Saul guy, man, you got to look out for him. He's doing the good stuff, man. He's really sharp, young guy. He's an up and comer, really a golden boy of the religious group, the Jews. I mean, they love love this guy, right? After he had climbed the mountain of religious success, right? Check it out. Stay with me. Don't check out, y'all. He followed all the right rules, He went to the right synagogue. He read the right books. He hated the right people. He had the right theology, right? He had all of the things that we often say, oh yeah, he's on the end, right? He knows, right? All the brownie points you could get from all the spiritual accolades, he would write, whatever was gained to me, I consider loss for the sake of knowing Jesus, right? He said, what's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage. (laughs) Your spiritual reputation, garbage, compared to knowing Jesus. (laughs) Anyone else struggle with this? Just gets you right between the eyes, doesn't it? It's like, I'm going to church, I'm going to go to small group. I went to small group, right? I'm trying to read the Bible. Sometimes I pray, right? I'm trying to earn it. I'm just getting there. Everyone's gonna, I'm getting there, right? I'm gonna, everyone's going to be like, man, you should preach, you know? And that's when you know you've arrived. It's when someone's like, dude, you should preach. You know, you should get up there because you're smart and religious. Trash compared to knowing Jesus. Amen. Look, I love preaching. I love doing sermons. It's good for me. Trash compared to knowing Jesus. Jesus. 
that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. The goal of prayer is God himself, knowing him, discovering who he is. The point of prayer is plumbing the depth of his mystery and goodness, which according to Ephesians 2, 7, will take eternity. The whole of the coming age to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. He says it's gonna take all of eternity for you to plumb the depths of his goodness, right? That's the point of prayer. That's the point of prayer. And some of you are like, man, that sounds lovely. I'm in, right? For others of you, it just makes prayer seem more elusive and confusing, right? (laughs) because if we're honest, we have no real desire for God or really any real need for God, you know, unless things get bad, right? And if, if the point of prayer isn't to get what I want, but just to know God more, well, I don't know if, do I want that? I don't know. And some of us might be there, but I just want to tell you just real quick, just that's not totally true because remember that one time when you ran out of money or you were about to get hit by that car or you were terrified for your life, almost without your permission, prayer came out of your mouth to God. Like you barely even believed in God at that point. Why? Because in those moments of utter helplessness and fear, your awareness of your need for God became quite real, didn't it? And the reality is it's always been there, but it took a moment for you to realize that in fact you do need a stronger more capable source of strength than you have in and of yourself. See, we all, we all need God. We all crave him like a child craves the attention of his father. Some are just more aware of it and therefore can press into it. And some have learned to pretty effectively ignore it, right? So it makes sense. If we're gonna talk about prayer, to look to the author and perfecter of our faith to get this conversation. We're just starting a conversation today, right? Praise his name, Jesus had things to say about prayer. And I'd like to suggest that he actually meant what he said. Um, but not only did he have things to say about prayer, he, he, he did it, he prayed, he was a prayer. It was a part of the fabric of his life. Routinely, repetitively, over and over again, Jesus is said to have gone into the wilderness, gone to the mountain, away from the crowds, away from his friends, away from his disciples to a solitary place to do what? To pray. Sometimes spending hours, sometimes nights, sometimes not sleeping, and instead praying through the night. And the sense that you get when you read the New Testament, especially the Gospels, right? Uh, primarily the Gospels, is that Jesus actually enjoyed praying. That's the sense that you get, right? Because you don't get alone to do something that you hate. And you certainly don't get alone to put on a show for others so they can applaud you, do you? (laughs) No, because if you're alone, there's no one to applaud you. No, you get alone to pursue things that you really long for, don't you? You get alone because you don't care what other people think. You like this, whatever it is. You enjoy this. In fact, you enjoy it so much that you enjoy it for its own sake. You don't enjoy it because other people know you enjoy it. You just enjoy it. So you get alone. You don't care. You believe 
this will fulfill me. It doesn't matter if anyone's watching because I believe it's gonna fulfill me whether or not people are watching, right? It's why we pursue sin alone. Not simply to hide it, but because you genuinely believe it's gonna satisfy you. And it doesn't matter if anyone sees it, right? We don't need a crowd applauding us to pursue something you genuinely love, right? When you enjoy a thing in and of itself, when you authentically enjoy carpentry or sewing or drawing or exercise or gardening, the enjoyment of the thing is not dependent on whether or not people see you doing it, right? Doesn't matter if you're known as a carpenter or a gardener or a sewer, who cares, right? It's only when people pursue things for superficial reasons do they seem to care if they're known for it, right? Which would easily describe many a religious people's prayer life, correct? You don't pray when you're alone. You do stuff you enjoy when you're alone. You do pray when other people are watching, though, right? You pray on the stage, literal or figurative, you know, which makes abundantly clear the realities that you believe about prayer. Prayer is not to know and delight in God because he's the most satisfying, joyful, life-giving being in the universe in and of himself. Prayer is just to prove to others you can jive with religious folk, right? And that is, that's doing what a lot of religious people do, which is take something that was designed to function vertically, right, between us and God, and hijack it and make it function horizontally between us and others. Religious people do this all the time, right? They take something that God gave us to engage this way with, and we change it to engage this way instead, right? So one pastor pointed out, uh, actually, I skipped this. So just like today, the disciples had a lot of confusion about uh, and misconceptions about prayer that Jesus intended to address. In fact, one, push, one pastor pointed out the contrast was so great between how prayer functioned in their life, the disciples' life, and how it functioned in Jesus' life, that of all the remarkable supernatural things Jesus did, cast out demons, right? Heal the lame, open eyes of the blind, open ears of the deaf. Bro, raise the dead, okay? Of all of the remarkable supernatural things Jesus did, the disciples didn't ask Jesus, hey man, show us how to raise the dead. The disciples did not ask Jesus, hey, you know that mud trick when you like spit? Like, will anyone spit work? Would, my, would John the Baptist spit? Like, if we get John the Baptist spit and put it in mud, would that heal? Like, show us how to do that. It's not what they said. It's not what they asked him. We have one record of them asking Jesus to teach them something. Guess what? Pray. They said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Of all the things he did, of all the things you might think, that would be cool to do. The one thing they were so intrigued by, so just swept away by was this man's approach to prayer. It was so in contrast to their understanding of prayer. They said, Jesus, of all the things you've done, we want to know how to pray. Teach us to pray, right? That's what I want. I want that. I want that experience. Something was happening when he was praying that's not happening when I'm praying. What is it, Right? Of all the things they could have asked, it was teaching to pray. And we have to sit with just this for a second. Why would they ask this, right? 
Well, one possible reason is nothing happened when they prayed, right? When Jesus prayed, stuff happened. Well, that's a possible reason. Maybe they were so amazed that when he actually prayed, stuff happened. They were like, well, I'd be, like to do that. But maybe it just wasn't that things happened when he prayed. Maybe it was something a little bit deeper. Maybe it was that Jesus prayed so differently than they were used to hearing that it disoriented them, right? Because what we'll see is when Jesus begins to teach about prayer, he doesn't teach them healing prayers. It's not what he teaches them, right? He teaches them the Lord's Prayer, which we'll, what we'll get to, but he sets it up first. In fact, uh, when he goes to teach them about prayer, the first thing he says is this. Okay, I'll teach you about prayer. If you want to learn to pray, you need to get alone. Don't be around anyone else. If you want to learn to pray like I pray, you need to get away from everybody. You need to go in the wilderness. You need to be get in your closet. You, just, you need to be alone. In other words, get away from all other possible incentives for being a person who prays, i.e., people think you're so spiritual. He says, when you do it that way, you have gotten off on the entirely wrong foot. You're approaching prayer completely backwards if the point of prayer is simply to have others hear you. He said, in fact, if all you want is a spiritual reputation, that is all you will get. If you want to make prayer a horizontal thing, then that's all it will be for you. Which explains, I think, why many have never had any real experiences in prayer, right? Because when we pray, we're just, we're doing it this way. We're just talking to people, right? We say the things that we think people are expecting us to say. We aren't talking to God. We're talking to others through a disguise of prayer. And when Jesus says, when you do that, prayer will always seem impotent and useless, because you're taking a tool God has given you to know and delight in him and you're using it to leverage yourself up a rung of spiritual popularity. It's like using a hammer to climb a house, right? Like quit being a dummy, just go get a ladder, right? If you wanna be popular, prayer is not the best tool, right? However, if you wanna drive a nail into wood, then yeah, a hammer is what you need. And if you wanna know God, then prayer is your tool, right? The first thing Jesus addresses when he begins talking about prayer is what do you think the point is? If you want to know God, if you want to experience him, love him, commune with him, delight with him, that's what prayer is for. And often our prayerlessness, our apathetic feelings towards prayer are really just indicative that you've been using prayer for the wrong purpose all along. And therefore it's no wonder prayer feels dumb, right? You're trying to use a tool for something else than it was intended for. Right? And if you've ever done a project without the right tool for the job, you know how frustrating jerry-rigging it is, some other tool to, to make the right tool happen, right? to make the right outcome happen. Right? If you want to know God, prayer is where you start. So in Matthew 6, Jesus begins to let his disciples in on his view of prayer by saying this, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. But that's ne next week. 
I just did it. Shameless, I know. All right, let's stand and pray. That's like worse than all the TV series these days, you know? You're like, 